It's good to be with you as it is each week. Good to worship with you. Good to be encouraged by you and good to be strengthened in the Lord by you. I have some of my immediate family with me here today too, as well as my church family with my parents and my brother and some sisters. So it's good to be with all of you today. This morning, we've reached our sixth and final week of our vision series at Redemption Hill Church as we finish up stating what we are all about. As we look back on the weeks that have led to today, we have casted a vision about our main purpose as a church and uh, the core values that support our pursuit of that goal. And in our first week, we looked at our mission and our vision statement, our purpose and our vision statement, and they read in this way. Do we have the slide there, Neil? We have in week one, to glorify God in all things, at all costs, among all peoples. And then our purpose is to be developing people who are shaped and driven by the gospel. We find in these words a statement that should be true of any believer who claims Jesus as their Savior. For from those of us who have received the free gift of salvation through the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. And though he has died and risen back to life, he had conquered death and sin once for all. Flows from us a heart of gratitude that can't help but bring God glory in all things. And it is these deep truths of the gospel that define and shape who we are as a person and as a people. It drives who we are, what we say, what we do, and how we live our lives as Christians. But as we all know, the pursuit of glory giving to our God creator, the almighty one, though it is good, it is sometimes hard. And it is sometimes messy. It was not intended to be this way, but the lingering effects of sin has us living in a world that is broken. And there is no way we can accomplish all that we set out to be or to do for the name of Christ on our own. So we, in the weeks leading up to now, have identified as a church some core values that we want to hold on to to help us accomplish as best as we can the pursuit of glorifying God. And I'd like to remind you of those that we've gone through up to this point. First, we partner with God's Spirit. We partner with His Spirit um, so that we may be empowered to live a life that brings glory to God and to know and follow His will and to fight against the sinful ways of the world. And this Spirit-filled life was not meant to be lived alone as we are called to live in community. So we live as God's family, encouraging one another and to sharpen one another, to keep uh, each other accountable, and to display the love of Jesus to the world. And we are formed by God's word to keep in relationship with him and to, uh, and to give us guidance on how to live our life and to continually point us to our Savior, Jesus. And last week we talked about we join in God's mission as we aim to be instruments for him, for his kingdom, and, for, and to fulfill his commandments to make disciples. And all of that leads to where we are today, which is we worship God always. Will you pray with me as we start today? Lord, as we gather this morning to hear from your word and from what you've put on my heart, I pray that you will stir in us a passion to live a life that overflows with worship to you. Jesus, there is no greater gift than the free gift of salvation that has brought restoration between God, Creator, and all of His people. May you teach us what is meant to live a life of worship, and may that worship be honoring to your name. Amen. I have to admit that it feels a little bit different being up here without my guitar, leading you in worship through song, um, and stepping into a role that is new and uh, honestly altogether a bit uncomfortable. 
Um, my greatest worry is that, uh, that today I might end up just reading you my sermon, uh, but uh, I'll rest in some advice that I was given, that a good sermon read from the heart of one dependent on the Holy Spirit is far better than a bad one well rehearsed. So um, I will do my best for you today, and if my eyes are down this way most of the time, I'll blame it on the light that's shining in my eyes. <laughs> This has been a very full and hard week leading up to today, so I would covet your prayers that the Lord might be able to use me as an effective tool for bringing you the word this morning. This morning I bring to you the last of our five core values of Redemption Hill Church, which is we worship always. And that's what I was given as the title, We Worship Always Go Sermon. And there's so many things that we could do with that. We could talk about what songs we sing and why we sing these songs or what we should do while we worship as a congregation. Should we stand? Should we raise our hands? Should we sit? Should we, um, uh, should we sing in harmony? Should we sing hymns? Should we sing praise songs? But I want to take an altogether different approach to this this morning, and I want to draw a deep connection between the gospel and our worship, and that's where I think I want to take us today. So if you would, take a moment with me to just walk through the gospel. Let's do that together. We see in Romans 3.23 that all men have fallen short of the glory of God. God's glory and his presence demands perfection, something that man cannot achieve. Therefore, man is found in a state of of, of separation from God and broken relationship. But God took extreme measures to restore that relationship by giving of his own son, Jesus, being perfect in nature, took our place and conquered sin and death through the work on the cross. And now, restore relationship with God is available as a free gift to all who believe. You know the words, John three sixteen. Let's say them together. Let's get that up there. Ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Think about that. Eternal life. I mean, that's a really long time, eternal life. I mean, where will we spend this eternity? In heaven, for those who believe in Jesus. But let me ask you a question. What do you think heaven will be like? We are going to spend the rest of eternity there, so I think it's a good question. When you close your eyes and envision what it will be like to one day rest in the glorious presence of God, our Creator, what will that be like? Will there be streets paved with gold reflecting the radiance of His glory? Will there be angels just flying everywhere proclaiming the name of Jesus? Will there be giant creatures with huge wings and eyes all over, continually singing the praises of God. Maybe um, there'll be seas of people bowing at the throne of God, worshiping him. Or maybe it'll just be like an eternal worship service. Well, we'll just be singing over and over and over, and we won't even need projection, because we'll just know the words, they'll be on our heart, and we'll be singing in unison. Or, or maybe it'll be like a really long sermon, right? And we're just continually learning and learning and learning about the eternal attributes of our God. See, all of these are thoughts that we might have or images that come to mind when we think about heaven. And it's a good question to ponder. After all, we're going to spend forever there, like literally forever. 
But heaven is not just about what we see or do. It's about being an unbroken, continual relationship with God and fully enjoying him forever. In fact, that is the connection to what we are talking about today in our worship in God. And if you get nothing else from this sermon today, hear this one part, that our worship is this. Our worship of God is our expression of and the completion of our enjoyment in him. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, says it this way. I think we delight what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that the lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone about how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care no more for it than a tin can in a ditch. To hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says the man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but we shall, we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify, and in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. What is something you really enjoy? Let me think about that for a second. Something you really enjoy. Flowers, puppies, Sports, food, roller coasters, grandchildren. What is something that you really enjoy? Imagine an always increasing amount of this enjoyment to be had. I mean, take this. You love puppies and you're playing with one and it's licking your face and you're rolling with it and cuddling with its fluffiness. And then to your delight, two more puppies join in the puppy fun. <laughs> and you, as a pile of fluffiness, are just in deep enjoyment of your puppies. And then five more puppies join in. Imagine this exact same scenario, except with grandkids. You see, the things we enjoy, the things that we enjoy now are limited in their enjoyment, either because they are themselves limited or our capacity to enjoy them is limited. There are only so many slices of pizza that I can enjoy before my capacity to enjoy them has reached its limit. (laughs) But unlike the enjoyment of things on earth, Our enjoyment of God will never run dry. It will never be satisfied. Because God is eternal. There there will be an always increasing source of enjoyment to be had. And our capacity to enjoy him will ever increase. So when we sing the words, 10,000 reasons and my heart goes on. Bless the Lord. There is no exaggeration in those words, even to the slightest. 
Because after we have found 10,000 reasons to enjoy God and in turn bless and worship him, we will find that we have not even begun to exhaust the list of reasons. And when we sing, when we've been there 10,000 years, sing with me. Bright shining as the sun. We've no less days. We've no less days to sing than when we first begun. Than when we first begun. These words take on new meaning as we find that after 10,000 years of enjoying God, that we have not even begun to scratch the surface of all that there is to enjoy in him. But we are not in heaven yet. We are here. So what do we do now? I think this, brings a, this perspective brings a stronger understanding as to why Paul would pen the words in Philippians 1-2, that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, because it will be so much better to be there and to be here is a sacrifice. I'm ready to be there. I'm ready for in full enjoyment of uninterrupted enjoyment of God and the pains and strife of this world to be left infinitely far behind. But God has me here. So how do we live a life of worship here and now? There are so many ways in which we could approach an answer to this. In fact, in our three different campuses on this exact same topic, we've had very different approaches. So if you're looking for more on why we worship God always, I got at least two more sermons you can go to on our website. But today, I want to approach this in two different ways. I want to ask, answer these two questions. How do we approach our daily lives to be an act of worship? And how can we approach our gathered time together as a church to be an act of worship? Let's first look at daily living. I think Romans 12.1 is a great place to start for this. So let's get that slide up there. Oh, already up there. Let me read it to you. It says, I appeal to you, therefore... Brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says here, therefore. Therefore what? Well, the gospel, therefore. Because you were dead in your sin, therefore. Because you were separated from God, therefore. Because Jesus paid the price of your transgressions, therefore. Because you are now reborn, Therefore, and he continues and says, by the mercies of God, you are not receiving what is due. God looks at you and sees Jesus instead. And it is by those mercies we can live a life that is pleasing to him. He then writes, present your bodies. That's your whole life. As a living sacrifice, that's your whole worship. Holy and acceptable to God. Acceptable, why? Only because of Jesus, which is your spiritual worship. I told you this is all about worship. So how much of our life should, we be, should be an act of worship to God? Once, once a week? Once a morning? 
How about once in the morning and again in the evening? We're getting good. Read these passages with me. Philippians 4.4. We'll read it together. Here we go. Let's read this together. Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord when? Yes, always. And in case you didn't get it the first time, it says it again. Rejoice. Let me read the next one to you. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Let me unpack that just a little bit. Give joy always. Never cease expressing your delight in him. Pray always, living in continual relationship with him. Give thanks always, as the price of your sin will always outweigh the cost of your present circumstances. This is God's desire, to live in relationship with you always. How do we know this? We know this because Jesus prayed this in an intimate prayer to God the Father. Moments before his arrest, his betrayal and his arrest on the way to the cross, God prays this for his followers and those whom his followers would bring to him. Jesus prays this. He prays this over you in John 17, 24. It reads, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It is Jesus' deep desire to live every moment in relationship with you. And for you to experience and enjoy his glory. And in turn complete your enjoyment by expressing praise and worship to him. So how much of our life should be an act of worship to God? All of it. Every moment. And clearly there is a command in Scripture and an expectation of those who claim Jesus as Savior that we live a life that is set up to be in continual worship. What does this look like? How might we accomplish this? If you look at the sum of all the time you have in life, you will most likely find that you spend a good portion of it doing work. Whatever that might be for you, you might be a businessman or woman, you might be a doctor or a fireman or a waitress or a waiter or a student, you might be an engineer or an artist or, I had to look this one up online, a professional line stander. There are people who stand in line for you. I know, it's weird, but I looked it up. I searched weird jobs and that came up. It's crazy, right? You might have one of the most intense, most important jobs in the world. I'm pretty sure mom is on that list. As you head to whatever work the Lord has for you right now, uh, actually, let me back up to this. Let me read two passages uh, back to back. Um, I think they're relevant to our conversation here. Let's put up the first one, Colossians 3.23. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Let's continue in Philippians 2.14. 
and 15, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. As you head to whatever work the Lord has for you right now, are you working heartily for the Lord? Are you working hard for the approval of man or for the approval of, or for the glory of God? Do you have a grumbling heart in your work that diminishes your opportunity in the light of the world as being a light in the world? How we approach our work is an opportunity to live a life of worship. Do, do you know what I do for a living? Some of you may and some of you may not. I've, had, I've heard one person in my profession describe my job in this way. I sell a product to a market that doesn't want it but is forced by law to buy it. I am a math teacher. And there are not many of, and I, my clientele are high school math students. And there are not many of my students who would choose to spend an hour a day, five days a week with me, unless they had to. And they do. I've heard pastors say that they dread the inevitable question of what do you do for a living that often comes up in casual conversation amongst new people. I think when you say you're a pastor, people might clam up, or the conversation may just end, and, or they may be unknowledge, make unknowledgeable statements like, oh, so you work like once a week, huh? <laughs> Try telling them you're a math teacher. There is no emotion held back to that response. Oh, man, you have the worst and hardest job in the world. I was terrible at math, and I had the worst math teachers. I can almost guarantee you can remember at least one of your math teachers that you've had in your career. And there's a chance you might be able to remember all of them. And I carry that weight with me every day. It's a strange world to go to every day, but every day I go to work, I see, that, I see it as my mission field and my means of being a living sacrifice. I tell my students and their parents that my purpose in being a teacher is to impact their young minds to provide better opportunity for their futures. You see, I teach students, and math is simply the, the tool that I have to do that. And in my teaching, I have an opportunity to care for, to listen to, to give advice to, and to simply put it, love my students. What they don't always see is that I am being a light for Jesus to them. I aim to work hard at what I do, to bring glory to God, and in my hard work, God is glorified. And I think the same can be true in whatever work that God has called you into. There are people amongst you that you can love into the name of Jesus. But I have to admit, there have been plenty times of grumbling in my 14 years as a teacher, and I know that this attitude has at times diminished my light. Let me ask you this. Is it possible to worship with a grumbling heart? I know we try. Why are we singing this song again? We sing this song all the time, and it isn't even that good of a song. Why don't we ever sing this other song? It is so much better of a song 
than this song that we are singing. I know it's not all just about songs, but that's close to me, so I chose that example. I'm just picking on songs. But a grumbling heart can disrupt any part of our worship, even our daily worship. But this is hard because there's a lot of things to grumble about. We grumble about our jobs. We grumble about our financial circumstances. We grumble about our relationships. We even grumble about our presidential choices. I'm sorry. (laughs) I can now feel that that's been used. (laughs) Scratch this line right here. Okay. I really did scratch a line. Um, we, We grumble about our ministries. We grumble about our health. And we grumble about our families. I think in our grumbling, we forget some truths about God. God loves you. He has a plan for you. He is going to give you the strength in whatever circumstances that he has you in. And he promises that he will work out all things for good. There's my edit right there. So if we keep away from an att- if so if we are to keep away from an attitude of grumbling, what attitude does God want from us? I think it goes back to the verse I read in 1 Thessalonians. Let's put it up one more time, 5:16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ for you. What does God desire from us? God desires a a heart of thanksgiving. And this attitude is independent from our circumstances. And flowing from this attitude of thankfulness will be an enjoyment of him that will lead to worship. Let's transition and look at some time, uh, at our time of gathered worship. What we're doing here today. As a church of believers, we have set aside a special time for us to gather in worship once a week. There are many reasons we do this. Today, I want to highlight three of them. Three reasons why we gather. Let's put up the first one. We gather in worship together to participate in the body of Christ. Let me read to you Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Scripture seems very clear in this passage. Neglecting to meet together is a bad habit. Our participation in the body of Christ is an essential part of our sanctification. That's fancy church language for saying we push each other to be like Jesus. C.S. Lewis writes this. I I told you I liked him. He, Jesus, works on us in all sorts of ways. Through nature, through our own bodies, through books, sometimes through experiences which seem, at the time, anti-Christian. But above all, he works on us through each other. Men are mirrors or carriers of Christ to other men. Sometimes unconscious carriers. We cannot participate in the body of Christ without being with the body of Christ. 
And this is an active being with. Simply showing up when we start and leaving when we end is not enough. You are called to be an active participant in the body of Christ. When we come together, let's pray together. Let's serve together, sing together, and fellowship together. Let's meet each other's needs together. And in doing so, we will stir up one another to love and good deeds. And this will be deeply encouraging. The second reason why I think we can gather together in worship, we gather in worship together to be led by those of God's choosing. All throughout Scripture, God uses leaders of his choosing to be his mouthpiece, his representatives to the people. The Hebrews had Moses and Joshua, the Israelites, David. Jesus chose 12 disciples, and Christians of the early church had Peter and Paul, among other overseers and deacons. And God continues to use people of his choosing to lead. Today, we have Scott leading us in worship, and we have pastors and overseers to seek God's will for our church. That is why in our search for a campus pastor in the months ahead, we must be fully dependent on the Holy Spirit to lead us to the person that he has chosen. God knows who our next pastor will be, and he will lead us to him. Number three, we gather in worship together to remind one another of the deep truths of the gospel. It was a couple weeks ago that I was sitting here in the front row of our worship service. That particular day, for whatever reason, I was feeling tired and defeated. We were singing as a group, and I just stopped. I silently sat there, and I listened to you sing. Your words were an incredible encouragement to me. That day, as I was reminded, as you reminded me of some of the important truths about God. Let me read to you Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There are two things that stand out to me in this verse. There is a distinct call to be filled and dependent on the Holy Spirit during our times of gathered worship. And the condition of our heart is critical to our worship. It says, but be filled with the Spirit. As we come together after being a week away, do we come filled with the Spirit? I think if we come filled with the Spirit, we come with a great sense of anticipation. We come with a great sense of that God is going to do something awesome in this place. It then is written, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. When we come together, yes, we sing. We do. But I want you to see in there that it says that we make melody to the Lord with your heart. I think the condition of our heart, that from the condition of our heart comes the songs that we sing. And we need to start with a, a right heart. We offer words, uh, the words we offer in worship together are designed for two purposes. 
They serve the purpose of admonishing one another. This is a strong word, which, which means to advise or urge, that word admonish. And in our context of worship, through song can mean instruct and remind. But above all, our songs serve the purpose of ascribing worth to God. It is an expression of our collective enjoyment of him. As if we say together, God, you are good in this place. We recognize your presence among us here, and you are the one true God and most worthy of praise. Let me ask you a question here. What is the most precious gift you have ever received? Can you think of it? Perhaps a birthday present or a Christmas present. Perhaps a gift that has much material value or perhaps significant personal value. I don't know if I can remember the most precious gift that I'd ever received, but I can remember the most precious gift that I'd ever given. It was in the spring of 2003 that I went shopping for this gift. It had to be perfect, and it had to be beautiful, and it had to last a lifetime. I spent every dollar I had on this gift, and I planned the perfect moment to give this gift. And as Christy and I sat cliffside at the beach, I reached into my pocket And with carefully crafted words, I expressed my love to her with that gift. The ring was a precious gift indeed. And the gift was intended to garner a very particular response. (laughs) Can you imagine if her response was something like, Oh, that's nice. And then she continued on as if nothing changed. Or, or if she said something, or maybe, maybe she said nothing at all. She simply accepted the gift and tucked it away in her pocket. Not the response I was looking for. Or worse, what if she rejected the gift altogether? See, Christy's response was like none of these. Christy cherished the gift that I gave her. She immediately put the ring on her finger. And soon after she had collected herself from the rush of emotion... She gave the response that I was longing for. Yes, she said, I will marry you. And it didn't stop there. She quickly, she was quickly on her phone and called all of those who meant much to her. (laughs) And she told them about the gift that she had received and the engagement that it symbolized. Even to this day, every once in a while, I can catch her in a quick stare at the precious gift that I had given her. Ultimately, our greatest reason for worship is found in the most precious and most intimate part of our relationship with him. We have been given a precious gift. And that, gift, that came at an indescribable cost. The gift of restored relationship with God the Father through the work of Jesus, is our ultimate reason to respond in worship. And each day brings a new opportunity to choose how you will respond to this most precious gift. I want to invite the team forward. We're going to have an opportunity together to respond in song. Let us worship today. Let our worship today be a loving response to our enjoyment of our Savior.